Good evening. Good evening. Uh, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> well, I started out in Mississippi. I started my tour in Mississippi uh, back on October 19th, and now I'm here. So it's been a long two and a half months. Well, actually about one and a half months, but it's so much has been happening in that one and a half months. I wouldn't, when I wrote this book, I wouldn't have never thought that I would be, it would have this much success. I really didn't. It's just, it just took off like wildfire. Um, I started writing this book. I said to myself, after I retire, I was going to write this book because Grandma Lula, it, I, owed, I owe this to her. And she never got out of my ear about writing the book and these stories. So I never, I know it sounds cliche, but I never forgot about my grandmother and the stories that she told. Um, and it has always been with me, just like the quilt. It's been with me for a very long time. But anyway, I started out in Mississippi, um, and it, I didn't, it didn't happen. I mean, I didn't plan it that way for it to start in Mississippi. But Mississippi just happened to be where my grandmother was born. And when I finished the book, and I went on Facebook, and because I, I said I would never do social media, and now I'm all into social media. I, I had 10 friends for the last 10 years, and now I have over 2,000. I have over 10,000 LinkedIn people. It just They just kind of like gravitated. And I want to just thank all my Facebook family, because they, I mean, you guys have really, really took, you know, took this book to another level. But just Mississippi just happened to, well, the commissioner of Mississippi saw me on Facebook, and they said, she said, would, would you mind coming to Mississippi? And I said, well, I'm finished my, I'm, you know, I'm finished writing the book, so sure, I'll start off in Mississippi. And it just happened to be 40 miles up the road where my grandmother was born. So she hooked me up with the newspaper there, and then pretty soon I had a television appearance on the noonday show, and, and that's how my tour kicked off in Mississippi. So when I got to Mississippi, I, I tried to do a little research on my grandmother because her lineage was lost, and I'm not going to tell you what happened because that's in the book, and I don't want to be a spoiler. But my grandmother was born in a little town called Sandersonville, Mississippi, which is about 40 miles south of Hattiesburg. Her parents and her older sister, they all kind of like lost their life, and one, one night a tragic Something very tragic happened to them, and I won't tell you what it is. You just have to read it in the book. So my grandmother had, she didn't have any lineage. Her lineage was pretty much frayed from, the, from that point on. But she was born in Sandersonville, and when she was 14, she started working as a nursemaid in the, in the home of the Williams family, a white family in, 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 um, in Sandersonville. She was only 14, after her sister and, you know, that tragic incident, she started working for them. And later on, my grandfather came through Mississippi, hoboing, from New Orleans, she called it. And he saw my grandmother and said, you're a tall glass of water. And they got married. And by that time, she was working for Doc Rogers. And she told Doc Rogers she was leaving and going to Livingston because she got married. And Doc Rogers said, I, you know, I just can't lose you, you know, because my grandmother was everything to him and his family. So she decided to go to travel from Livingston to, to Hattiesburg and Laurel twice a month. And that's 126 miles because by that time, my grandmother was having her own children, and it, was, it took its toll on her. She did that for about a year, and she told Doc Rogers, I can't do it anymore. So Doc Rogers said, I tell you what, I'm going to send you it with a driver 
I'm going to have a driver drive you back and forth between Mississippi and Livingston every, every, twice a month. And she, she didn't turn down that office. So here my grandmother riding up and down those roads, those back roads, with a chauffeur. <laughs> in those days, back in the 1920s, 30s, and every time she drove that, she was on that ride, she would get pulled over by a white policeman. And he would just give her all kind of grief. And so after a few months went by, she told Doc Rogers what was happening. And Doc Rogers said, I think Doc Rogers was, was a country mafia. Because after she told, it didn't happen anymore. So by that time, the police would still pull him over. But she, he would pull over to get my grandmother's tea cakes. said, I just pulled you over just to check on you, make sure you're okay. And you have some of those tea cakes, Miss Lula. And before long, my grandmother was making him tea cakes every two weeks. And then she started making him quilts. And then before you know, she got really close to his family. But that was my grandmother. That's how she went when I mentioned in the book how she, how she, uh, she used love to, to, to kind of just like defray some of the racism and bigotry. But my grandmother used her quilts and her cooking for that. And, uh, and she taught me that. So anyway, I was, by the time my, my, my mother started having, my grandmother, my mother, my grandmother started having kids, and my mother came along. And then six more kids came along. And my father met my mother in Livingston and said, well, when I get out of the Navy, I'm going to get, I'm going to come back, get you, and we're moving north. This, you know, that's it. And I'm never coming to Alabama ever again. And that's exactly what happened. But when my mother got to Detroit, a lot of kids start coming along. It's like my mother had like six kids in, in, a, in, a, in a six, seven-year span. So... I was a twin, so I was the one that was designated to go down south to live with my grand, with my grandmother, you know, because my my grandmother had said that if you have twins, then I'll take the girl. That's what my mother said. That's her story. So off I went to Alabama. I was four years old. I don't remember anything except this big black car driving up and me getting inside of it, and all of a sudden it went from tree-lined streets to country country and country no running water outside toilets no electricity house raised up off the off on cement and concrete blocks where I can crawl up under there pigs cows horses well old mule anyway really with no house old bob uh guineas ducks geese Everything, stuff I had never seen. I was scared. I was, I was one scared kid because I had to go from using inside toilet to going out in the middle of the cotton field to use the bathroom, sit on, sit in the outhouse. And I was afraid. I was, I was just taken from one environment to a, to a completely different environment. And it, it was, it was, I was, I was, I was afraid. And my grandmother, every night I used to shake. I used to just shake like a leaf, just could not get warm. You know, and it wasn't the cold. It was, the, it was just being afraid. And I just shook. Every, my grandmother would look at me and said, I just don't know what I'm going to do with you, child. I just can't get you warm. She would take those irons. I don't know if some of you may be old enough to those irons that don't, don't run off electricity. You just warm them up by the fireplace and you stick And She used to take those and, and wrap them up and stuff and put them at the foot of the bed and to try to get me warm. And I just, it just wasn't happening. I would still shake. Then one night she got up, a few months passed, and, and took out this half-built quilt here. And it was falling apart. A lot of the pieces was missing. And she took that quilt and put it on me and tucked like, like I was an infant. And... 
it just kind of like transformed me. I wasn't cold anymore, wasn't shaking anymore. And then after that, she, I guess she looked at this quilt and, and found the therapeutic value in it and said, well, we're gonna, I'm going to make, we're going to make this quilt, repair this quilt together. My grandmother made quilts and, and everybody in the area knew that she would not make a quilt unless it was from the cloth of people who had died. That's why Quilt of Souls came to be. All those pieces in there belong to my ancestors and, and her loved ones, and that's why the book tells, tells the story. And she would tell me the story of these, of these pieces of cloth and how they, did, how they lived and how they died. That's why when people, I mean, you go on Amazon, I would never believe in a million years that I have over 100 five-star reviews on Amazon, and people pretty much say the same thing about the quilt and, and, and the story. I wanted to capture the story of those people that's in the quilt in a lot of people down on that farm that I that I met during those years, they were old people. People who were born in the 1800s, the late 1880s, 1890s, and most of them were women. And these women had impact, a serious impact on my life. And when I wrote the book, when I wrote Quote of Souls, I wanted to capture them. And in order for me to do that, I had to step back on that farm and step into their shoes and feel what they were feeling. And they and these women went through a lot. And ten, 10 chapters in this book is dedicated to those women who I met and their stories that they told me and, their imp- and the impact they had on my life and the stories my grandmother told about them. Because if I didn't meet them myself, my grandmother told me the stories of them. And there was some pretty powerful stories, starting with Ella, whose wedding dress is in the, is in that, is in the quilt. And she was my grandmother's oldest sister. My grandmother's... My grandmother's mother had three children who were sold in slavery. They were much older than my grandmother. And after they were sold, my, mother, my grandmother Lula said her mother didn't think she would ever have any more kids because she was that broken up. But along came Ella, and then along came my grandmother in 1883. But just to show you, just to, when people said, when they, people read the preface, they said, as soon as I read the preface, I was hooked, locked stock and barrel so I didn't have to read any further and people just went right to the pay page you know so and I'll let you read the preface but this I just want to give you a good idea because people say well how do you remember those stories there's no way you can remember but if you just listen to this this is this is chapter four this is the first part of the Ella story Ella story is really is really powerful and it's two chapters I had to had to skip a chapter in between writing because the story was so powerful. I would stay up at 3 o'clock in the morning because, like I said, I would step into these people's shoes and feel exactly how they were feeling. Like I was sitting on top of the roof with a kid's eye, with a four- or five-year-old eye, but telling it through adult eyes. And that 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 was hard for me to do. It was very hard, and sometimes I had to take a break. Matter of fact, I had, I had to go through three editors. One editor spent so much time. She, she became a mesh with my story and started taking it, and she couldn't go to sleep, and she started adding pieces, and I'm going, whoa, whoa, wait. Wait a minute. Hold up. Hold up here. And I met this woman on a train, and she was, she's a, um, a movie script writer. She wrote, she's a script writer for um, What's the name of the, uh, gang, uh, Gangs of New York? I met her on in the sleeping car. 
And so I had to pull, pull this back from her because she said, oh, this is my story too. So I had, and before long, I, had, I saw her name on the book. And it's, oh, whoa, my goodness. So I had to retract all of that, took out any edits she made, and start from scratch. I had another editor who came so enmeshed with the story. I, and then I met this Jewish woman in, from Ashland, Oregon, who said that she can do this book. Leslie Kaplan with a C. And this woman, she is one powerful editor. And, I, and the problem with editing this type of book is the dialogue. I said, Leslie, if I have to ask you, if you please don't ask me what, you know, because Grandma had a lot of sayings in this book. Please don't ask me what that is, and people won't understand it because I, I'm not changing it. So we came to a meeting of the minds, that, but she was a, a good editor. But just to show you how powerful the stories are, she said she had never in her life edited a book in 20 years she'd been editing a book that that took her just just took grabbed her because we could have wrote more than 192 pages but she said we can't I, I can't do it anymore so but anyway this is chapter four Ellis I just want to give you a good idea of why I remember these stories and this 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 chapter in the next chapter I'm gonna read really capture people in their essence and I know you've read the book so <laughs> I know you you know what I'm getting ready to say Okay, we began a regular pattern of spending long country days sewing quilts while Grandma told stories that were as soothing to me as her singing. We usually worked on quilts under the oak tree in the front. One afternoon, Grandma decided it was time to repair my quilt. It still had missing pieces, and some of the cloth was dangling by threads. I was going to have to give up my quilt, my beloved quilt, while it was being fixed. I hadn't been without it since the moment I claimed it as mine. Grandma said, it's high time we finish it, been long enough. I closed my eyes and imagined what it would look like once Grandma worked her magic on it. Now that I was the focus of her attention, I started feeling special. I'd never felt special in, my, in all my life. Grandma dug around in her bag of rags and pulled out a piece of faded off-white cloth, smiling like she'd found a long-lost treasure. She started humming one of her sweet tunes. She held up the faded white cloth and told me it was from Ella's wedding dress. Ella was the woman whose portrait graced the hallway and whom I longed to know more about. i finally be learning about her that day. This here first cloth we putting in your quilt, Grandma said. That was the beginning of a history lesson that would stick with me for the rest of my life. The folk tales of my ancestors and Grandma's friends who were born in the late 1800s would be the layers of used clothes that laid the foundation for my quilt. Each piece portrayed the, portrait, the story of that person's life and death. It wasn't only their garment that would embed into my quilt. It was their stories and what they were able to achieve, regardless of the insurmountable obstacles they faced. Grandma had many memories of time past. She'd refer to those days as after slavery days or during slavery times. It became her way of measuring the span of her lifetime. Ella's story was an interlude to the tale spun about the quilt. Grandma would stop intermittently to bark out, You paying attention, child? This was her way of letting me letting me know how important these stories were and how they were intimately attached to her past. I felt honored she was passing them down to me. She told me how each piece of cloth was married to the misery and pain of those whose lives had come to a sudden tragic end many years ago. While other children learned and memorized the fictitious stories of the three little pigs and little red riding hood, I was being taught real life stories, ones of hardship, loss, love, courage, and strength. Stories about how the making of a quilt had impact. You could stitch broken pieces of the heart back together and mend it somehow. 
I'd gasp when I pick up material that still shows signs of being soil, some with human blood. The stains were so set in that even soap and water couldn't remove them. They were forever embedded into the fibers of the fabric. I was sure some were stained with sweat from pushing the plow and working the fields from sunup to sundown. Some clothes bore the tears of heartache from loss and abandonment. Emotions I understood. Those, these were the cloths that was used to mend and finish my quilt. Grandma was t- meticulous as she stitched each individual piece together, like finding an exact piece of a puzzle. She'd measure each one with the length of her hand to ensure a perfect fit. It was with those clothes that Grandma built a colorful masterpiece, something so tattered turned hold again into a cherished possession people could wrap themselves up in. When Grandma stitched, she went into kind of a trance. It's what folks down south call a stitching rhythm. As she began her story, she spoke with deep conviction. It commanded my full attention, and my full attention is what I gave. I'm going to tell you the story of my sister Ella, she said. It's a well-known fact that even though the North won the war, they sure didn't let about, on about it down here in the South too much. Now, there was a man named Old Master Young who lived in those days down in Laurel, Mississippi. He had a big plantation with a lot of slaves. He was the meanest slave owner in the state of Mississippi, just plain old hateful. Mama say he beat his slaves coming and going. Not a day go by he come out of that big old house that sits square dead on top of Devil's Hill. You can hear him before you see him coming because he breathing like he done plow 40 acres. And truth be told, he couldn't hit a lick at a snake. But he sure know how to make mom and papa's life not worth living morning until night. My folks, Joe and Emma Young, they was owned by that sorry devil. Before the, war, was, before the war was over, while the slaves were still slaves, Mama had four children. The evil Master Young take those children and sell them away, every last one of them. Some of them still nursing. I know it like to kill Mama. Grandma shook her head in disgust. I felt her pain. She wasn't born yet at the time of the story, but said Emma passed it on to her when she was younger than I was. Her voice trailed off as she talked and stitched in perfect rhythm. I watched as the white thread moved in and out of the fabric without missing a beat. Grandma would repeat the same stories over and over and over again. Nothing ever changed, the names, the people, the environment. It was like learning my mathematics table and the alphabet repetitively, repetitively until it became rote. I was sure that was why the tales of the quilt ingrained deep into my consciousness and never left. I thought Grandma was doing that on purpose. Or histories and the passing down of ancestral stories were a crucial and fundamental piece that existed in the black culture. At some point, the importance of cultural storytelling disappeared, no longer considered to be of any value. Grandma was passing those stories down to me said her, so, so that her history wouldn't be lost. So I would sit and I would lay up under that house. I would crawl after I got over my fear of chickens and, and, and hogs and stuff. That, that Up under that house became my place where I can just go and escape and just listen to all those old people that came to the front yard and listen in on their stories. And I used to crawl up under that house through all the, all the chicken mess. I used to crawl from the, I, I couldn't let grandma know that I was up under the house, so I would start in the backyard and crawl all the way to the front. And I used to lay up under that house on my elbows and just laugh. I didn't know what I was laughing at, but they would be in the front yard talking and, and, and you know, this grown-up talk. And I would just, like, I really understood what was happening, but it was, but you have to realize, I didn't have any kids to play with. I grew up around old people. I mean, that, that, was, my, that was my life. I saw kids when I went to school, which was three miles away, and they used to laugh at me so bad because my grandmother was making my clothes 
out of clothes of the dead people. And they would tell say, Lord, wow, you look like you got on dead people's clothes. And yes, I did. <laughs> I, and, and somebody, t- I went to a quilt and grill. I did a, a 200 women down in Virginia Beach. And they're the ones told me, because I always wondered what the back used to make me clothes out of feed sack. And, and they didn't buy very much. They would get flour from the meal and, and, uh, and get meal from the meal and sugar from the meal. But it came in big old cloth sacks. And she used to say, and she used to make my clothes, sew my clothes out of these feed sacks. And that's what that is on the back. The backing is, a, is from feed sack. And I didn't know that until they told me. I always wondered what it was. But anyway, I used to lay up under that house and then go to school. And the kids used to talk and laugh at me because I just, you know, they used to come to school with little cans of potted meat and Vienna sausage because that was the thing. My grandmother used to send me with one greasy bag that I have to bring home every single day, paper bag with an old cold biscuit. My grandmother made good biscuits, but she used to throw a piece of mystery meat in there. And kids would just laugh and they would ask, well, we got Vienna sausage. So, you know, I, I just really never had any friends but what I did have, I used to get up in front of the class and tell these stories that grandmother used to tell me. And the kids would just sit there with their mouth got wide open like where, because grandmother had some, she had some stories and, and they're all in this book. But I used to tell the same stories that she told me. And I used to take them to school, do oral history, used to throw them out there. And since we had the worst books, because it was only a two-room school, we had all the old used Dick and Jane books. And after hearing my grandmother's stories about real people and real things, I could have threw Dick and Jane and Spot and Father and everybody down the outhouse. I didn't, I, I wasn't, I didn't want to hear that. I wanted to hear real stuff because grandmother had spent too, much, too many years telling me these stories and Dick and Jane just didn't equate to what I was learning. I wanted to hear real stuff. So... Um, like I said, my grandmother used to have people ju- used to just come and just watch her. I mean, they were in love with Miss Lula because she was one of, it wasn't anybody like her. I've never met anybody like her. Um, my grandmother had friends, and my grandfather, her husband, he, had, he was really ill. He had bad arthritis, so he didn't move around. So my grandmother used to quilt. She used to hook up old Bob and plow the fields. She farmed every day. She picked cotton, me and her side by side, picking cotton. We, I, that's why I, I, I hate sweet potatoes right now, because she would, she would plow the field, and I would come behind picking up sweet potatoes, and I hated that. I hated picking sweet potatoes. I hate picking what, what she called Irish potatoes, and I found out later on it meant Irish potatoes. Pecans, she would get up. She, my grandmother would climb up in the tree and shake the pecan tree, and I would have to put them in the cans and... And she would give these things away. She didn't sell anything. She would give her stuff away. She, I would see people try to put stuff in her pocket, and she would I don't want, no. She didn't, she, she never, she, they never paid her for anything. But my grandmother, and she was 80 now when she was doing this, when she was doing all this farming. She was 80-something. So, but the people that used to show up in my grandmother's front yard was, there were some amazing People. My grandfather had 16 sisters and brothers. And the people in town, the white McMillans in town, they were, and that's why you mentioned, I'll mention here about the Hush bloodline. They was related to my grandfather and his people, but it was 
my grandfather's sister used to show up in the front yard, and she used to always whisper, you know, and like it's nobody, I mean, the nearest neighbor was three miles down the road, and that was my grandfather's sister's. <laughs> but she used to whisper about this hushed bloodline. You know, you know that yellow gal over there belonged to blah, blah, blah. Let's, you know, so everybody knew that the McMillans and my grandfather, the man who owned the bank and the store, were, were related, but Aunt Bessie had always whispered about it. But this was just some of the people that used to show up in the yard. And for some reason, my family, their names were sweet. Always had to do, like, Miss Sugar and Aunt Honeybee, Aunt Pie, you know, Grandma Sugar Babe. You know, so everybody had a sweet name. Then I had cousins called Butter and Jelly. You know, so everybody had nicknames, and I just never knew anybody's name. But this, this is the chapter everybody just, they just, they just crack up at. And, you know, and it, it's, it's, it kind of like takes some of the tension off the previous chapter. So this chapter is called Miss Sugar and Aunt Honeybee. And it goes like, Grandma had close relationships with so many people, I could barely keep up with who was who. People came and went a lot. I look up and see folks coming down the road with their walking sticks. Sometimes they look disheveled like they walk for miles. People love Grandma Lula. Not only was she the best quilt maker around, she was the best peanut brittle and homemade cake maker too. Her fruit cakes were so popular, people placed their orders two years in advance. I often heard the old folks say that Grandma's fruit cakes could make a blind man see. I was dying to know the story behind such a fruitcake that had the power to give, back to, back, to give sight back to the blind. It wasn't long before I found out. I learned that not only did Grandma keep homemade edibles in her lock shiffer robe, she also stored what she called her bottle of spirits in there. She used these spirits in her fruitcake. Spirits was a fancy way of saying alcohol, not the kind you put on your aches and pains. I guess that's why, that was why when people ate her cakes, they left giddy in as light as feathers. I started helping Grandma make her fruitcake. She'd pull out her bottle of spirits and add a few cups to the batter. We'd pour the mix into 12-inch pans and bake them in the oven for what felt like forever. Right before a crust formed on the top of the cake, we'd pull them out. Once they cooled, we'd place them in cake tins, and off they went to sit under Grandma's bed for a year. Two days before Christmas, we'd fetch them from the dark abyss when the time was right for them to be devoured. The first time the top was removed, my oh my, the smell of spirits mixed in with the fruit and nuts nearly knocked me over. One time, curiosity got the best of me. I wanted to know what made them so special. Grandma was in the field, so I decided to sneak in for a taste of my own. I crawled under the bed and searched the dark. Without much effort, I dragged out the first one I laid my eyes, my hands on. When I opened the top, sure enough, the smell sent my senses into ecstasy. I was drooling like a pig as I sank my teeth into the first bite. I thought I had died and went to heaven. I ate almost a fourth of that one of that one fruitcake and probably would have downed the entire thing if I hadn't heard Grandpa approaching from the rear of the house. I closed the lid and shoved the remainder back under the bed as fast as I could. All of a sudden, I was moving in slow motion. My head spun like a spinning top, and I started giggling and slobbering all over myself. Grandpa saw me in the hallway and looked at me cross-eyed as I shot past him down the dog trot. I didn't remember. Any, do everybody know what a dog trot is? This the country people do though. Down in, down south, you have these 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 shanties, and you can stand in the front yard, and you can look all the way to the backyard, and you can. It's just a long hallway, and I guess they they call it dog trot because the dog could run straight through. And you know, during those hunting days, I guess that's why they called it a dog trot. But our dog trot was the living room, 
So everything was, everything was set, up, set up down there. Okay, so all of a sudden, so I was under the house. All of a sudden, I was moving in slow motion. My head spun like a spinning top, and I started giggling and slobbering all over myself. Grandpa saw me in the hallway and looked at me cross-eyed as I shot past him down the dog trot. I didn't remember anything after that, but when I woke up, I was under the house with the chickens, not having a clue as to how I got there. I heard Grandma screaming the hell out of my name. It hurt my head. I scrambled from under the house, looking guilty as sin. Grandma asked, what's wrong with you, child? You look like you're drunk. I didn't know. I didn't have the slightest idea what drunk meant, so I smiled at her and went on my way. She didn't let on, but I was pretty, pretty sure she knew what I'd been up to. I loved watching Grandpa give, up, give, Grandma give out her fruitcakes. She was more thankful to give them to folks than they were to receive them. She got a lot of joy from the act of giving. She gave away her cakes and never asked for a cent. People begged Grandma to take their money, but she refused. I'd even see folks try and make sneak money into her apron pocket when she wasn't looking. She was the most generous human being I've ever known. I asked her why she always gave her stuff away. She looked at me with that warm beam of love coming out of her eyes and said, Child, you can never pay me enough for a smile or a gracious heart. Grandma, I want you to always remember that. And that was... That was Lula. That, that was her in a nutshell. She gave. She was more, always more given to, to give than, than ever, ever to receive. And those, that's just some of the things that she taught me. And I will always cherish those things. But like I said, I have 10 chapters in here. That's just a small portion. It's some very, very powerful stories in there from Cooter. You know, that, I think that was my favorite person out of this whole book you know, besides my grandmother and the lessons she taught, because I remember when I would complain about something, she would say, now, you remember that story I told you about Cooter? Cooter was a wash woman, and my grandmother said that did you, you, a lot of times people think that maids' job were, it was, had hard jobs, but a laundress, they had the worst, the most back-breaking job that you could ever imagine, because they would have to wash white people's clothes, whether it was raining, snowing, a hundred and some degrees, and they would wash, they cooter and had four sisters, and they would wash their clothes outside with homemade lye soap, and then would just, they would, they would wash the, the, the clothes that was due on Wednesday, they had to take on Monday. The clothes that was due on Friday, they had to pick up on Wednesday. So it was never a time to just rest except for the weekend. Cooter was in a, uh, in, a, in a relationship where she, was, um, where she was abused by her husband, but she still had to make sure these clothes got to the people on time on wash day. And, they, and, she, and you can see them out there washing clothes on their hands, on those scrub boards, in those big black pots, because I would have to help my grandmother wash clothes in those big black pots where we would take sticks, take them out of the boiling black pot and throw them up in the silver tub and let it cool off. You know, that's how you, that's how, that's, and then we would take the clothes and throw them on the line and leave them out there. So I know how hard it was washing just for my grandfather, my grandmother, myself. So I can imagine these women who had to pick up those clothes. But she tells the story of her good friend Cooter, who was a laundress, and then my Aunt Tudney, you know, and I wish I had a, um, the internet, I can, I, I can, I can play it for you. But my Aunt Tudney is in the um, Library of Congress. She was a saint, she, she sung, and she was married, and her, she had one child, one son named Josh, 
and who was killed at a young age, and her husband died too. So she was pretty much died a, a, a you know a widow, and she only had that one child who was killed, you know by she he was lynched when he was like twelve or thirteen. So her songs are so much about pain and misery. So I would walk down those three miles down the road to sit in that house in that old house and listen to her sing, and you can tell that you can just the just the the, the long guttural pain in her voice when she sung that you could tell that she was she was grieving over her child and her husband and it you know and I didn't realize that until later on after I had gotten older and just go back and listen after I, when I was writing Tiffany's story I would put that bring it up on YouTube and listen to her song and it would just I mean it, it took me right there and that's why a lot of the stories in here are dedicated to those women that I met because there's no way I would have made it through what I had to go through in my life without going back, thinking about these women who were very instrumental in my life. So that's pretty much it with Quilt of Souls, and I don't, I, I don't want to go too far over because she will kick you out. <laughs> when she says ready to go, that's why I want to spend plenty of time for questions and You know, it, it sounds like you put a lot into this. Yes. And when you write something like this and it's done and then you're ready to go to the next step, mm-hmm. how did you find this editor, that this mm-hmm. this Miss Kaplan, mm-hmm. and how did you find a publisher that was willing to, to put this in a form that, that you could be proud of and that you could share with other people? Okay, I'll start with the publisher first. I went with a... It's a literary agent said, I want to be, I want to represent you. And she said, but she was also an editor too. Then I started reading the contract and how much they were going to take and my rights and people, 20% goes to this person. And if they make a movie out of it, you, they get 35%. I mean, I had no, I mean, I was, I would just be a figurehead. The, you know, because they could take the book and they can change it around and grandmother's. And I said, oh, no. And, and I am just so thankful I had a 60 day out clause. So I got I said, well, I'll just make the investment and self-publish, even though I know it's much more difficult to self-publish because you, so much you have to do. by, But it's worth the effort. And now it's not as hard as I thought it was going to be because it just social media just took it and ran with it. So really, it's 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 it's, it's taking a life of his own. And as far as my editor, it's hard. It was it was difficult. It was she fell in love with with this book. She fell in love with the characters, and she just you know because it just takes you. I mean, they just grab you because I'm a storyteller, and she just said, "I just these these characters just unbelievable." Because it's like every I looked at all the reviews on Amazon. And they basically say the same. It's almost like I was there. And that's what I did. I put myself right there. I want. Well, I've had a friend of mine who lives in in California and she's trying to do some writing. She said, I have a perfect editor for you. And I said, well, let me talk to her because I didn't want to go through that again. And I talked to her and she promised me that she would because not only is Leslie an editor but she's a writing coach too because she'll tell you if you're trying to hold something back she said you can't hold stuff back because your reader will see the gaps in it 
And I always, always said that when, I, when people read this book, I wanted to be, I wanted to, the characters to jump off the page. I wanted them to, when the reader reads it, I want them to be able to be, up, be absorbed in the character. And, um, and she kind of just like, no, you need to go back here. You know, don't show. She, that was her favorite thing. Don't show. Don't tell show. Don't tell show. Don't tell show. Don't. And, you know, because she said, don't be preachy. You, you don't say you walk down the roads telling what color the sand was. How did the dirt feel on your feet? And then I start getting into a groove and, and, and it just kind of like took off. Yeah. First, first of all, best wishes on the uh, book. It sounds okay. like an exciting read there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of reminds me of my own childhood. Um, if uh, school was out on Monday, mm-hmm. June the 1st, we were in North Carolina, June the 4th. <laughs> and that was like from the time I was seven until I was 14. Yeah. When I could say I'm not going anymore. So I can, you know, so, so your story evokes my own early life. Yeah. I have uh, two questions. Uh-huh. One, um, in your quilt, um, do, do you have any cloth from uh, any relatives who were enslaved. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, my, um, my, well, I won't, I won't, I don't want to go too deep in it, but mm-hmm. my, some okay. of the, some of the cloths up there are, my grandmother's mother had started this quilt. Mm-hmm. And she didn't tell me the story of some of those pieces because they were already in there, but I know they were already there. And since she said, well, you know, your grandmother well, her mother started this quilt. I'm just assuming that some of the cloths that are already in there mm-hmm. are pe- were people from that day. Not the oranges and the greens because that's cooter. The uh, the uh, but some of the other ones mm-hmm. are definitely definitely uh, people who were enslaved. Okay. And then my uh, last question is: Did you ever make it back to Detroit, or did, did you spend your entire life in, yeah, in the I, South? Well, no, I, I'm not going to. My lips are sealed. <laughs> my, li- I will give it away. <laughs> so I, I read the book and I absolutely loved it. Okay. Um, the only criticism I have is I wish it was longer. Yeah, yeah. And I, we, I really wanted to hear every story about yeah. every piece in the quilt. And, and that's I'm going back. I'm going back for that. It drained. It's. It was so mentally draining to go back there and capture those stories that mm-hmm. that she told. It was it was it so, was strange. So I recommended the book to a friend of mine at work, okay. and I told her I was coming here today. And she goes, okay. and I said to her, I "Go, have you finished the book?" And uh-huh. she said, "No." And I said, "Well, I'm going to tell Phyllis that you didn't finish it yet." <laughs> and she said, "Well, just tell her it's because each story is just so powerful. It's just yeah. so hard for me to to get through it, and but not because she doesn't love right. it, but it's yeah. just that it means so much." I, I hear that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Just wanted to know how long it took you to compile this, to come up with the book, to write it, actually. How did I? How long? How long? Two years and three months. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and I was walking down the street and I saw your picture in the showcase. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main library. Mm-hmm. And I, have, I had three aunts. You can say they did to me, but they deceased. Okay. And she was doing quilts like that, too. Mm-hmm. And she was going around different organizations, you know, like mm-hmm. when hospitals have Christmas mm-hmm. bazaars. Mm-hmm. She would make them for them. Or she had each, each block had a story. Right, yeah. My aunt, yeah. Arnold D., said that each block had a story. 
Mm-hmm. And she got it from her mother. Mm-hmm. So she never had any children. So when I was like eight or ten, she used to live down in Mount Wana. Mm-hmm. And she did the quilt for, you know, even department stores. Wow. Like Stewart's, yeah. mm-hmm. Hustlers, mm-hmm. and um, London Fog, believe mm-hmm. it or not. Wow. That, they was, that she would do it around the holiday time. Mm-hmm. Or somebody would say, well, I would like for you to do a quilt. And then she started gathering ladies and young teenagers mm-hmm. between 13 through 17 mm-hmm. will do help her with do the quilt. And they enjoyed it. I even know how to do a little of it. <laughs> but it's been yeah. so long. You know, <laughs> she showed me how to crochet and everything. But the quilt, she said, each block means something and everybody has a story to tell mm-hmm. when they do a quilt and it's dear to her heart and she said Vanessa you're just not paying attention why you not paying attention <laughs> I said oh no damn paying attention I really am paying attention but it would take them hours and hours but she said it's work involved mm-hmm. and love involved you know mm-hmm. and sentimental mm-hmm. memories too you know so it passed down to, you know, generation to generation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and you got to remember, my grandmother did all these stitches by hand. She could thread a needle. I have a picture of her at her 100th birthday party. And uh, she still could thread. She could still, she was 100. She, she lived to be 103. Yeah. But she still could thread a needle. But she would talk to me, and I'm trying to mess around and do something else and not pay attention. She, she could, she could a straight line stitch without taking her eyes off of me. So that that takes talent. Miss Lawson, yes, ma'am. I have a question. Have you Okay, I have a question. Have you uh ever since your grandmother left a beautiful legacy with the quilts, have you ever uh or your children mm-hmm. uh developed the craft of uh making a quilt such as your like your grandma did and have anyone ever offered like a movie or you think someone will eventually want to make a movie out of your, I your hear book? that all the time i mean by face people on facebook they can tell you i mean people mention that if you go through the reviews you know it's, it's they need to make a movie out of this they need to make a movie out of this so it's it's coming i, I do believe it's coming okay it's not without a doubt No, I do this. No, I just, I just, I, I just started this tour in October. Now, 2016 is going to be, is just packed because I'm going to be out to LA and and Texas and Oklahoma and other. So this is. <laughs> oh, geez. Oh. <laughs> If you were to use that quilt to cover yourself uh, in your in, during your slumber, yeah. what side would be the top for you, closest oh, to your? This, this right here, this part. So, do you know who are the patches on mm-hmm. that side are? Mm-hmm. In the in the book. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just want to applaud you on on the book, on Thank completing you. a book, and also self-publishing. Um, 
I'm a self-published author working on my second book, and oh, I right. do publicity for self-published authors. Yeah. So I'm just um, interested in, in what kept you going, and you said two years, mm -hmm. two years and three months. Yeah. And um, it's such an intimate story, mm -hmm. and I, I'm just wondering, was, was there a lot of emotion in yeah. your, and I, I, what was your process? So were you sort of remembering this and, and writing notes? Like, just, can you talk a little yeah. bit about the actual process? It, it was so strange because I would, sometimes I would be up to like two or three in the morning, and I would take, when I wanted to do a story, I would take the, I would take the quilt and I would wrap it around me, and I tell you, my grandmother always said this quilt is, has, you know, is, is, you know, it's a lot of spirits in this quilt. And I truly, truly, truly believe that because the stories would just come. I, I sit up and I write a, an entire story in one night, you know, just like the Cooter story. I sat up and I just wrote it and it just kept coming. It kept pouring. And I just remembering and, you know, uh, 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 my grandmother telling me the story or talking about, um, you know, my, uh, my Aunt Tudney and just remembering her story and how I would sit in that old rocking chair and listen to her sing and stuff and, and feeling her pain. I mean, because I knew she was in pain. And I wanted to describe that pain. I wanted to step into Aunt Tudney's shoes and feel everything that she was feeling when she lost her son and, and the songs that she sung. And I just wanted to. And I, I actually felt these people. I really did. I mean, people think I'm crazy, but... That's the only way I could write that story that way because because I, I, I you know I was right I was I stepped into their shoes basically and it was easy to do once I stepped in, into the shoes and you know and, and, and it was the it was the editing piece that took six months to do it's because my grandmother's dialogue it has to it had to be consistent throughout the book I can't she can't say W I T for with one day and then the next. W-I-T-H, so it, everything had to be consistent, so it was constantly going over and over and over. She would read it to me, I would read it to her, and then we got so engaged in it, then we sent it to the proofreader. The proofreader got all the mesh with it, and so she missed out something, so we had to send it to another proofreader, then it came back, so it was, it's, it, that was the process. Did your husband persuade you to do this, or you just, when you was growing up, did you um, have taken notes of it? No. By it, talking to your, you know, your grandmother, did you take notes, or did you never, just wanted to do it from the heart? You know, old people, for some reason, they tell the same story over and over and over and over again. Before my grandmother died, she, this was maybe about a year before. She said, come and sit down, child, so I can tell you the story about Ella. And I already knew it through and through. So once you hear that over and over, oh, and nothing ever changed with her stories. Nothing ever changed. It was the same exact story. So all those stories just embedded right up here. They never left all these years. Mm-hmm, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I noticed two or three o'clock in the morning, you get out of here. Yeah, you do. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well that's 
Well, that's why I moved to Florida in 2013, cause, and I live about five, five miles from the Atlantic Ocean. So I have been out at 2 o'clock in the morning sitting next to the, on a, on a rock with this quilt. Did you speak more? No, I didn't. No, not really, because, you know, I'm, I'm ex-military, so we do more before 4 a.m. than most of Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, no, this is, this is my job. Oh, this is your job. Yes, uh, oh yeah, so, full time. Are you working on something new? You know, everybody keeps saying, uh, you know, I just got a, um, well, I'm getting ready to do a second edition because everybody's, well, for one thing, I just got a five-star review from a professional reviewing you know, which was, I mean, it was, it was awesome. <laughs> so, so I'm getting ready to take and put that gold star right there. <laughs> and, you know, try to, uh, people said I need to put pictures of the quilt in there, pictures of my grandmother in there. So I'm just going to do some, but I, I'm going to come back later on after, after 2016, I'm going to come back and, and catch up with the stories. Are there other questions? Well, let's give a, Great round of applause for Phyllis Lawson's work.